Woods from Let the Sawdust Fly. Uh, P- Peter, I first of all, I have to apologize. I think you tried to call me yesterday, yep. but I had my cell phone on hiatus. <laughs> I figured you're so busy with the holiday weekend. I thought uh, I'll talk to him maybe tomorrow. <laughs> Well, it was was kind of that way. It was kind of that way without even thinking about it. I had the volume turned off on my cell phone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's hard to talk when you got it that way, but hey, uh, it all worked out. Everything's good. The weather's beautiful, isn't it? Not really. We need some cold weather, but (laughs) folks are looking over at Lake Superior. Most of the percentage high water is here. In all the world, we got a high percentage of fresh water, so it's beautiful here. Um, we need colder weather, though. We definitely need colder weather. But, uh, Brad, today we have a special guest. He's been on here before. He hails out of Texas. Uh, Tom, Tom Hurt, uh, very good guy, knows his equipment, has been in the business for his whole adult career. And it's been a pleasure to get to know Tom. And he has a good pulse on what's going on in the timber industry in this country and other countries. He does sell equipment heavy in the United States, but he also deals in foreign countries as well. And Tom wow. didn't always start in the timber industry. He had a, a quite a quite a colorful life in his younger years, and he still does. But Tom started out as a college football player, but didn't actually get uh, picked. But Tom, are you there? And uh, like like to talk about that, and then get into the logging a little bit. Yeah. Good morning, Brad. Good morning, Pete. Good to hear you guys. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Tom. So so I was uh, trying to pump you up there, Tom, a little bit that uh, you live a little bit of a more colorful life than a lot of people. And you want to tell them a little bit about yourself in that? I can. Uh, it's hard to be concise with a fast talker like me, but I'll do the best I can. The, uh, <laughs> the, story, the, the story you're alluding to is, of course, and I, I graduated high school. I, I played football, but for a small little school. And I wasn't really big in size at the time when I graduated, maybe about 200 pounds, but I grew a lot that summer. And my trade, the, my capabilities were focused as being an offensive center, but I could hike for a punt better than most. I had a great coach, and they taught me. And we could fire it back there like about a missile. Anyway, we, I ended up walking on at school back in Illinois State, and they had a, they had a real uh, prima donna punter, and he was buddies with the existing center. And when the uh, grad assistant saw what I could do, he tried to encourage him, hey, you need to try this guy out. And they said, no, we don't need anybody. We only had four punts blocked last year, and, you know, it was just uh, not, a, not a big deal. A couple of the guys joked that the punt, he was, the, his punt snap was so slow, the punter had to call for a fair catch so he didn't get tackled before he tried. You know. So anyway, anyway I, he, he had the guy keep me. The, he made the putter come over. He long blonde hair back. This is back in the seventies. Okay, so you're talking to an old guy here. But we're back in the seventies. Has his long flowing golden locks, and he sits back. He's okay, fine. You know, throw it back here and stuff. Well, he wasn't really paying attention. And I also had noticed that he intentionally stepped back a few extra yards just to jack with me. And I look at the the graduate assistant was there next to me, and he was going to give the signal when to hike. I said, he's not ready. And he yelled back, hey, Marty, get ready. And Marty says, just tell him to throw it back here. And the graduate looked at me. He said, okay, on the whistle. And I, I take one look, and then my style was, when I look up to whatever's going to be in front of me, he blew the right. whistle. And I let, this, I let this thing fly with everything I had. And it's just a low-rising torpedo. And all I heard was, Marty, look out. And I turned around just inside, in time to see his right hand deflect the ball from the perfect position I had hiked it and into the middle of his face. And it moved his nose 
moved his nose over under his left eye, and I'm thinking, holy crap. And all I heard for a moment was, you SOP, you SOP, you are in trouble. And he starts chasing me with this blood gushing out of his face, and I'm running around the field house, and he, they finally tackled him. And uh, after after a couple of weeks, he got more used to me, and uh, that that got me noticed. It got me on the team, got me a scholarship, and uh, uh, and I kept growing. They kept feeding me, and I kept getting bigger. But um, he became a good friend after that because he never had a punt blocked after that. So it was fun. It was fun. I'll bet. I, I was going to say if he blo- blo- broke his nose like that, they might be looking for a new punter, but I guess he made it through that. <laughs> <laughs> he he had he had time to heal. They braced it up for him, but yeah, he was it it, it ruined his pretty face for a little while. That was for sure. Anyway, <laughs> isn't that quite a story there, Brad? When you hear that, you that just is, laugh, I love that. It's yeah. true. Call it's a true. fall. Call for a fair catch of a punt. <laughs> a punt snap. But it gives a little snapshot there, folks, of the past here, and some of the things that we talk about today is a little bit of the past and also the future, hopefully. But, uh, Brad, um, some of the things that have taken place over the years, uh, some people don't remember. If, we're, if you're probably 45 or 50, you won't even remember some of these things in the, if you're in the timber industry. And sometimes some things come along that just shock everybody when they see it. And one of those things is when back in the 80s, and Tom was there to, he was trying to peddle it as a salesman, which he did very well. But, Tom, you want to tell the folks a little bit about the 80s and what you saw take place there? Well, uh, some of the, the guys who are probably retired these days or are, you know, in the in their 60s, or early 70s, they can remember that, uh, you know, when they you know when they evolved from chainsaws, they went to, they figured out how to cut with a, a set of cutting knives or shear, a shear head, so to speak. And that worked for a long time, and it was much more productive and much safer than having a guy underneath the wood. But it took a long time, uh, four, six, eight, sometimes 12 seconds, and in a lot of the wood, when you compress it like that, it would do damage. They call it butt chatter, as you know, we call it. And up okay. in your guys' country, where the wood was frozen, it could be as far as five or six feet. So it was always something where you're losing, especially in good quality money wood, so to speak, where it's valuable you know, as, a, as production lumber, uh, it's expensive. So Coring had developed this hot saw, uh, that saw him. That would spin a big disc. At, at, I mean, this was two, you know, about it was like a 2,500-pound disc spinning at 1,300 RPM, and it did. It would cut through a tree quickly. And they had a big machine down in Warehouser uh, in Arkansas and uh, Oklahoma when we first came across it. Well, we got with them when I was with Barco, and uh, our team got with their company and matched it up with our drive to tree fuller buncher, the old Barco 775. And we modified the hydraulics, figured out what had to be done, and figured out that even though you're driving through the tree, you had time as you cut the tree that quickly that the operator had time to close the arms. You know, he had a few seconds to close it. And we figured out it could right. be a safely done thing. Well, so anyway, we, we got it ready, and we brought the – we tested the machine several places, and everybody loved it. So we took it to the big Atlanta show. Uh, every two years they had a big show in the south in Atlanta – we had a big booth. We rented a, a big screen TV, and we had a bunch of chairs there. And on this, at that time, back in the mid '80s, I'm this young buck, thinks he knows a few things. And uh, we're telling some of these older loggers that, yeah, well, we got this new attachment. You know, it can cut a tree in, you know, a, in about a second. 
and these old crusty old farts would look at you. Yeah, right, whippersnapper. What do you know? You know, I think, you know, no, no, you know, you can watch this video right here. So this one old guy came up. Okay, he just didn't have any time for me. And the video starts, and it just shows a close-up of about an 18-inch pine. And the guy says, so what are you going to do? I said, well, just watch. And then from out, out of camera range, all of a sudden, here comes the head of the machine, the saw head. And all you hear was, and it got right through it, grabbed it, and the thing just drove right on out of the picture. And the guy turned to me, he grabbed my shoulder, and he said, this is the fastest SOP I've ever seen in my life. And he just <laughs> went nuts. And he turned to a couple of his buddies, show me that again. I said, well, it's, it's, it's not over yet, sir. And they, they turned, and all of a sudden, five or six of them sat out, and they were just mesmerized. And they watched this, like, a 30-minute 30, you know, video we had done of him cutting trees, laying them down, the speed. We had close-ups showing how this blade just went through this tree in no time. And they knew there was no damage to the tree. And they saw it was getting close to the ground. And it was just, it was one of those few moments in, you know, equipment history where some new technology or some matching of, of an attachment to a carrier just really right. changed the way guys produced. We sold a bunch of them at the show, and it's just been a lot of fun ever since. And you, you and I talked about this one time, Pete. It's really, I think that was even a bigger change in, in U.S. manufacturing than like the harvesting head. Although the harvesting head, when it came over from you know, Scandinavia, was also a huge, huge change in cut to length. Yep. So interesting time. So, t- Tom... Tom, this is Brad Bennett, and would you explain exactly how that functioned? Now, the way I visualize this is up until that time, the buncher, what, it would just grab the tree and a guy with a chainsaw would cut it, and then it would lay the tree down, but you adapted it so that the saw fit onto the grabber? Is that what it was? Well... Uh, Brad, you are clearly not a regular in our industry, so some of your verbiage is a little <laughs> no, bit unfiltered. No. But, <laughs> but no, there was um, there were actually one company uh, made a, uh, a a cutting head with actually two saw bars on each side, and he was trying to make okay. a saw head to help alleviate that. But prior okay. to that, guys were out just cutting by hand with you know with chainsaws, which of course is a sure. dangerous activity. And then they figured out how to put a basic shear, and it was a directional shear one time where they just pushed a big blade to the bottom of the tree, and they had an arm on top that would help push the tree over. And then they developed it for smaller timber to have blades on both sides of a of a fuller buncher head, and it had two you know it had like um, two uh, two you know, blades that would open up to about 20 inches, and they would go up to the tree. The blades would fit around each side. They could then grab the tree with the holding arms, then activate right. the blades to come through and snip it, and then they, they would pick it up and carry it. So when we came to the saw head concept, it changed the operational technique to a degree because now as you are approaching the tree, now there are, there are different saw heads where you can grab the tree and then cut it, but the hot saw was designed, you have this blade spinning all the time. And so sure. you would go up, you would li- you'd line yourself up with the tree, Set the head at a good low low level to get a good low stump, and literally you would just accelerate the machine, tr- you know, through the tree. And as you cut it, you guys would get used to it. When a tree is cut that fast, it takes two to three seconds before that tree knows what the heck's happened and which way to fall. Right. And by that time, right. they they close their holding arms, pull the tree into the pocket, and they've got control, and they carry the tree and lay it down where they want. Or in smaller timber, they could cut two, three, five trees. 
um, with their using an accumulator arm that, you know, if they grab the first tree, one set of arms opens up and grab another one and it can flop back open again and grab a third or a fourth. It's a neat process. So this you haven't seen it. This speeded this speeded up the process immensely, and in oh. fact, then then made it much more profitable to be out in the woods too. At the same time, right? Absolutely, sir. It was it was a a monumental change in both quality and speed, safety as well, and it was just uh, it it really it turned the industry into a whole new dimension. Uh, it was fun to be there when it all happened. A lot of guys today, they see the hot saws, and you don't really know what had happened. It was probably not a, not much different than way back in, you know, maybe the 40s or whatever when it came with the first chainsaw versus just doing, a, you know, big hand saws. You know, with a big hand saw, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, guys, we have, to take, we have to take our first break here. So, you know, let's think about when we come back from the break, let's talk about the process that was developed to actually lay the tree down and strip the um the extra branches and stuff off of it because that I've seen that out in the woods and it's it's beautiful to see it happen. So we're gonna take our first break here. We're we're with Pete Woods to let the sawdust fly and his guest today, Tom Hurt from Texas. We'll be right back. Giant Redwood, the larch, the fir, the mighty Scots pine, the smell of fresh cut timber, the crash of mighty trees. With my best girl by my side, we'd sing, sing, sing. I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I sleep all night and I work all day. He's a lumberjack and he's okay. He sleeps all night and he works all day. I cut down trees, I eat my lunch, I go to the lavatory. On Wednesday, I go shopping and have buttered scones for tea. I have never seen Pete Wood drink tea in my life. <laughs> That'd be a good one, Brad, because I don't care for it. No, but I can imagine. Say, uh, so talk, guys, talk a little bit about the. I I know that a lot of these developments were made simply to make the operations out in the wood more efficient collect more wood, uh, you know, the faster you could do the job, the more profits you could develop. But that that's really what drove the industry, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, real quickly here. A lot of stuff is developed because we want to make life a little bit easier. It's kind of like air conditioning, a little bit more comfortable. And so things were developed, and in the timber industry is no different. Machines were developed um, to make life better and make it, then hopefully production comes up. Safety is huge because people would get hurt in the past by many, many things and many machines. And there's a wide range of how the machines are. They, the, they vary from part of the country, from one part to the other. But a lot of the stuff is the same. Uh, the outcome, a lot of stuff is the same. And, Tom, would you, would you want to talk a little bit? Because you, you deal with folks all over the nation, other countries, um, even Russia. And I don't know how much we can talk about that without you being jeopardized in life, huh? <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> well, you know, and, and Brad, Brad makes a good observation. Um, you know, just like as the sawhead kind of came into the south, you know, initially, uh, up in the north, where uh, the wood is, you know, the wood is uh, used um, for a lot more production capacity. There is some pulp wood, but also a lot of saw grade wood. 
there was, you know, guys cutting the, the limbs off by hand after they knocked it down. Oh, yeah. Well, you have, you have that Scandinavian history up there, and guys had relatives back over in Scandinavia, and the word came up there much quicker that in Northern Europe they had developed this processing style of head, and they put large steel rollers on it. And, of course, this is old news to the guys that are listening right now. They know what a processing head is. But it was something that came out of Europe first, um, the European mills uh, paid uh, a fair price for their wood, and also the operators. Uh, I mean, there many of them are college educated in Europe. It is a it's a profession that is sought after. They are considered uh, very um, uh, very high, highly technical in what they are supposed to do. And you okay. can, if you ever traveled to Europe, that and had a chance to look at the different uh, sites there. It's very fascinating. But that technology came over to the United States. And it began in the lake states where, uh, you know, they had they had historical value with their heritage on those things. It didn't take place in the south as much and, you know, and really doesn't uh, today because the southern mills have always have been set up for tree-length timber. And they are prepared to make their cuts with laser cutters and stuff at their mills the way they want them. And so they, they don't offer. A guy could go ahead and cut it himself in the south. But he would not get the added value for that for that work. Okay. So it's easier for them to come with volume. In the north, the mills are set up to receive that wood free cut by the, the by the loggers. They they don't they don't add that extra aspect into their mills for that rate for that reason. So okay. you travel the north, and you got you see all kinds of short wood trucks bringing the loads in and everything. The same concept with the style, the style of loaders up there. Most of the trucks have their own loaders on them. In the south, the log loader is its own bigger device that has to handle tree length timber. So it's an interesting aspect, and it's it's handled differently. But Brad, to one question you mentioned, one statement you made about them, the south, as they would delimb wood, they would often bring it to the landing, use a loader and a mechanical pull through delimber. That is extremely challenging for the loader that held it. They put a lot of side loads on the booms. They would wear out pins sure. and bushings. And they also found that if they did some merchandising, maybe cut out uh, a 20-foot plywood log instead of just letting everything go to chips or what have you. And they began to in, to um, integrate processing heads used at the deck in the south. And you see that much more often. Probably, I would say, 25-30% of the loggers are running um, processing heads, but it's at the deck. It's not in the woods uh, doing in woods processing. So you won't see you won't see many guys with forwarders in the south that are required up in the north to bring the wood out when they're harvesting. Okay. In the, you know, in the woods. That did is, most of the technology on this equipment did it come from uh, research and development of the of the of the companies, or did it come from questions from loggers who said? Hey, is there any way you could do this or that to make a device to do this? Well, I think it's I think it's fair to say that necessity, you know, is what brings on invention, as they say. And right. there were you would see that you would have to give credit to a lot of the European loggers to come with that initial concept. But what's always been interesting is that when they would then bring them to the states, the U.S. contractors would get a hold of them. And I, I remember several places where we've had European presenters at a, at, a, at a conference or something, and they would be bragging about this amazing device they'd brought over and doing things that we hadn't seen. 
and you see that U.S. blogger look at him, kind of scratching his chin and nodding, says, you know, yeah, that is amazing. That is so neat. And the, the European guys are so proud. And then that U.S. guy would throw that haymaker and say, but you know what would make it really good? And it would just freak him out. You know, and it would be things like, you know, they, they would bring them over with British pipe thread fittings. That is a very rare type of hydraulic fitting. And our guys would say, well, that's nice, but you've got to have JIC, or you've got to have, you know, fl- you know, flange O-rings, you know, that kind of thing. Or sure. we don't cut the wood like this. You've got, to have, you've got to have that saw set up here. They love the concept, but then the U.S. ingenuity would take over, and they would modify it more for the U.S. applications, whether it's the north or the south. And it, it's always been like that. I mean, th- that's the beautiful thing about the United States. You have a you have a blend of mutts from all over the world. And, you know, like I said, the, you go back a, a, a few generations, and most of us have grandparents or great-grandparents that came from other countries. It's pretty unique. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, guys, we've got to take our CBS News break. Uh, we're we're going to continue on this discussion. I'm, I find it interesting about how the logging industry has developed from the old handsaw and pulling it out of the woods. Uh, I've mentioned to Pete, I spent two summers in the woods myself as a kid growing up. My my uh, uh, my parents wanted me to do it to build myself up for football, so I'd be ready for football. But I, I spent the whole time on the back of a truck with a pick, pulling the logs up and stacking them on the back of the truck by hand. Now they don't even do that, but it's necessity that has brought all of this development and profitability up. So I want to continue talking to Tom Hurt and Pete Woods when we come back after CBS News. Well, we are uh, we are back with a little bit of the Woodchopper's baller to bring us back. We've got Pete Woods and his guest uh, Tom Hurt here, and I'm I'm thinking about how quickly it it may seem like it took forever, but I think a lot of these innovations in logging happened so fast. I mean, you you see, uh, you know, and I've seen videos and films of of them now where they grab a tree, cut it off, drop it, s- strip it of all the branches and everything in just a matter of seconds. Uh, who are the big companies? that provide th- this kind of equipment. Uh, for example, I know that in the, you know, in the, in the um, harvesting area, you've got John Deere and you've got people like that. But do we have American-made companies that make a lot of this equipment? I'm, I'm sure there are foreign companies as well. But who, who makes the kind of equipment loggers look to? We have um, several major manufacturers, uh, Caterpillar, is involved. They bought out some forestry companies that manufacture, and they have the technology to do that. Komatsu, even though they're a Japanese-owned company, they have several manufacturing facilities in the United States, and they've recently okay. bought up manufacturers such as Quadco and Logmax, who have U.S. manufacturing capabilities. Logmax is a Swedish company, but they also have U.S. Uh, capacity as well. Um, up in your area, there's even a there's a small uh, player up in uh, the Upper Peninsula uh, called Delfab that used to be owned by Komatsu, and they make the only three-wheel color buncher on the market today. But it's all made right there, American-made, up in uh, Gladstone, Michigan. So there's okay. those technology, yeah, things like that are are still in existence. And 
if the need exists for something to be made better or to fit an application better than what uh, other countries are providing, yeah, the, the U.S. ingenuity, as you were saying, Brad, it, it takes over, and it comes in. They yeah. figure it out, and they add the technology to make it better. It's fascinating. It really is. Peter, what uh, when you're out in the woods, you're you're you use some of this technology, but you're still a lot of uh, you know chainsaws and those kinds of things um, technology as well. Yep. Is logging different in different areas of the country because of the types of trees you you bring down? Uh, a lot has to. Some is terrain. Some is how the trees are. Like like up here where we're at, a lot of our trees are not that straight or uh, tall. If you get up in northern okay. Minnesota, you'll get some real nice, beautiful aspen stands where they go more tree length up that way. But you get down where our area is, uh, and it's crooked and gnarly. And if you try to go a lot of tree length, you're going to have a lot of trouble because it's gnarly, crooked, bent. So a lot of it became 8-foot, so you get utilize more of the tree. Then if you go into Wisconsin, Michigan, it's kind of like that too, very little tree length. If you get down the southeast United States, heavy, heavy tree length, high production, uh, loggers yeah. are always trying to push the loads as much as possible, just like you do anywhere else. Then if you get out west, western United States, it's uh, the steep slope, tether logging, where they're pulling the machines up and down the hill, and that's just it's a newer concept. But a lot of machines, to me, were designed and built because somebody had an idea watching something else to try and apply it to their industry. It's kind of like the cut to length, having it processed right out there. From what I understand, the first machines of that were probably back in the early 70s. If, if I'm wrong, Tom, please correct me. But they were designed in the early 70s, and they've come a long, long ways. And as you get those machines nicer and nicer, faster and faster, it gets a bit difficult to get them more yet, more faster, more nicer. Sure. And they get more expensive, sure. and then you got to keep your production up. In that. But the thing that uh, some of the loggers do now to be – I guess more profitable and, and be able to change or do things is Thomas telling me one time that uh, loggers are adapting their machines to different doing things like that three wheeler machine. Uh, Tom, you want to talk just a little bit about that? How about the, what they're doing in other parts of the world and in this country with them? Yeah, you bet. The, the challenge with a lot of our our loggers uh, these days, Pete, you and I have talked about this, is they're independent contractors, and they often, although it's a, it's a it's a large close group uh, of guys that do it underneath all of it they're they're competitors also in in their own regions and so they go to bid on tracks or whatever and they're they they bid against each other from time to time and that's a real challenge for loggers to be able to maximize their values when you know there's that competition and they have to be careful not to not to become a commodity and this be have be the same as the next guy who's you know 10 miles down the road try to have more of a diverse uh, selection of equipment where you can do more things. Uh, we mentioned out in the West Coast, they finally figured out out there that, gee, what's better, um, properly uh, servicing the, the, the timber the timberland by uh, taking care of it and nurturing it better, or uh, just let it all burn from a big forest fire. Gee, which one's what's better than that? And some of the bureaucrats finally figured out that, gee, forest fires are bad, bad. And yeah. homeowners have been told, you know, they've got to start cutting uh, cutting back undergrowth away from their homes because if, if they don't uh, help prevent fires from getting close to their houses, they're not going to have insurance. And you see now a much greater demand growing 
in California where loggers are now adding uh, mulching machines to, you know, mulching heads or actual mulching machines themselves that can go through the understore, the underbrush, and mulch it down to, you know, just to mulch to nutrients that will feed, you know, decompose, go back into the ground. And that way if a fire does break out, it can't be as severe underneath the trees where it can get up and reach the limbs. And that's what causes a forest fire to get out of control. You can see sure. a lot of old forests where there may have been a, a lightning fire in a, just a, maybe an unmanicured forest, but there was never enough understory to where the flames could get up to the lower limbs and then consume the tree. So you'll see blackened bark at the bottoms of the big, of the big timber, but the trees survived it because the heat never got that bad. Loggers are always looking to diversify, you know, diversify themselves to different ways. That's how they, they stay ahead of the game because they, they really haven't been compensated as much, especially these days. You know, we talked about how you know, the cost of living has just jumped with inflation. That, that's something everybody oh, yeah. can roll their eyes at and, and are aware of. We, we chose to tell you, you can go into a jewelry store and say, I'd like to see some diamonds. That guy will throw a plate full of diamonds in front of you. He'll take what you want. Then you look around. You go into a Home Depot now and say, I'd like to see a plywood board. Oh, we'll come back here with our security department. We've got that chained up in back. And if you have to ask how much it is, so you, you can't afford it. And it's just it's, it's, how, it's, it's how much, you know, these things have gone up. Yet your, your, retailers, your retailers are doing better. Your wholesalers are doing better. But not as much of it has made its way back to the raw material producers, the loggers. And that's something we try to really encourage guys to work on to help you know, advance their careers, to be more diverse. Well, look, guys, we, we're going to have to take a break here, and we do have one of our great sponsors uh, that's very connected to the wood industry on the phone. So let's take this break, and then we'll come back and wrap wrap the show up at the top of the hour. But we've got Matt Boo on hold from Duluth Stove and Fireplace. Uh, Matt, we're talking, uh, we're, we're talking, let the sawdust fly. Very interesting okay. show this morning about the technology development that has happened in the logging industry that has gone from back in the times when people cut logs out in the woods with a two hand buck saw all the way up to now a, a device that'll grab it, cut it, strip it and, uh, cut it into links for you. So technology, even in your business gets much, much better, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. You know, it's the uh, technology in our end is how can we burn that wood better and, yeah. you know, yeah. burn it cleaner and get more as much BTU out of a pound of wood as, as you can, but still keep the dynamics of a fire, uh, you know, because the fire works off uh, heat and temperature differences. And if you pull too much heat off there, then you're not, your draft is going to be affected. So it's a, it's a real good balance. Right. And and it's great to see these manufacturers really getting down to it and developing these these high efficient, super efficient well, I, wood products. I think we we had talked in the past, and I know one of the things uh, that the government gets involved in is they want to see more efficient uh, use of wood products of, of of pellets and and all the products, and that's why they're offering rebates and discounts for efficient units that you uh, send out and replace an older unit with. And that's, that's going to be an ongoing uh, case, don't you think, in the future? Yeah, and I've, I've been fortunate to kind of go through that evolution because uh, years ago they were the EPA was just stepping up and saying, you know, outline and banning and regulating. And, uh, and then I, I think got a little change of heart and said, 
you know what, let's get these stoves down to a certain amount and let's start promoting, you know, the EPA saying let's promote these stoves and go and get some of these old things off the market and let's, right. you know, let's clean it right. up. You know, burning is a, is a local, it's renewable, it's inexpensive, so it's, it's a thing. So let's make it the best way we can do it and still keep the environment clean. Well, that's fantastic. And, of course, you guys have a beautiful showroom located over on, what is it, 25th, the corner of 25th and Superior Street? Yeah, 25th, uh, 2431 West Superior Street. Okay. How do we get a hold of you phone-wise and all of that stuff? 218-727-9002. And website is DuluthStove.com. All right. Matt Boo, Duluth Stove and Fireplace, thank you so much. We'll be uh, right back after our Minnesota news break to wrap up uh, with our guest uh, Tom Hurt and Pete Woods of Let the Sawdust Fly. KDAL time, 1254, 34 degrees in downtown Duluth. And Brad, we have what appears to be uh, heavy fog, heavy mist. And uh, we're going to shake these blues. These clouds are going to move out of here tonight, starting uh, tomorrow morning even. And we're going to get back into some clear, sunny conditions, but we're going to have to wait a little bit here. So you're going to have to take off that London fog and hopefully get some sunshine coming back in. There you go. Well, in the meantime, Pete Woods, this has been interesting. I'm I'm so glad uh, you were able to get Tom to come on again because he's got the knowledge of the uh, of the all the equipment uh, updates and equipment growth in the industry. It's phenomenal just to think of how far we've come in, what, 50, 60 years? It's been ongoing for lifetimes, and it's Tom has a perspective that I thought was excellent because he is um, um, is – because he he sees it from his shoes and I don't see it from my shoes. Okay, I wanted to get a different perspective. But there's one thing that's coming down the pipe, folks. That's it's really got a big concern for me, and I don't know if folks out there are aware of it or that. But it's electricity. There's putting so many regulations on clean green energy, and it keeps and they keep putting these dates into the future where no more fossil fuels, no more coal can be burnt. Well, there's one thing, if this continues and goes more and more, and if Tom wants to talk just hear about it, we're going to run out of time here, but if Tom would uh, hit on what he sees too, is that we have a material that can be used right into the coal, that, and it's wood, and it's very renewable. And why can't we, we got to start doing something now, because if these things really kick into place, we're not going to have rolling blackouts, we're just going to be blacked out, because the, yeah. the capacity is not there, folks. Heavy, heavy percentage of our electricity still comes from coal and natural gas. Very heavy percentage. And so it's, 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 a, it's a tidal wave that's coming that we need to do something now. And wood can be the answer to help it out totally. And uh, can you just hand me this one thing? And, and uh, fossil fuel total, 60%. Natural gas is 39.9. Coal, 19.7. Nuclear, 18.2. Renewables, wind, 10%. Hydro, 6%. And it goes on here. And so it, it's, it's, it's a big concern. And, and Tom, from your perspective, what do you see on this? Well, I think you're right. Wood's always been classified as, as a renewable resource, and our ability to produce it, it's, it's there. The, the technology is going to push, especially as prices for fuel and everything go up, that will make uh, greater pressure for people to look to wood to create better products. If you remember several years ago, they looked at you know, trying to create um, you know, a petroleum product, basically, if you would, out of wood. 
uh, by using new processes. But when the, you know, that's when the cost of a gallon of gas was up around five and a half, six gallons. When that went down, that lost momentum. But it, they talk about it coming back again. So these are things that are available, not just in the United States, but from all over the world, because wood is always going to be there. And as we yeah. keep finding better ways to produce and evaluate it and make it do its thing, uh, loggers will always be important. Amen. Yeah, no, no I, I think it is going to be in it. And like Pete said, it's I learned very early in life, it is a renewable resource. It can be regrown again, and over a period of a lifetime, of a logger's lifetime, you can harvest an area two, three times if you if you properly become the conservative of that area. So it's it's good to hear. Very much so. It's good bad. to hear. Yep. You bet. Well, guys, it has been a pleasure having you on this morning. Um, we, um, we're just about out of time here. Uh, Pete, what do you got planned for uh, next month? Any Anything you want to let us know about right up front, or are you still uh, working on a guest uh, for working next, on it. This, next this, month? Actually, this one, this was a bit of a hair puller for me because we're getting around Christmas time, New Year's, and uh, oh, yeah. tell you the truth, I didn't know if Tom was going to come on a, a day ago for sure. <laughs> but I knew I could come on. Well, he said he's going to do it. I knew he would do did. it. We're glad you did. Tom. I was getting nervous here, folks, and and I knew when Tom said he would do it, he would. And so, once again, thanks a lot. I appreciate it very, very much. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Peter, for uh, let the sawdust fly, and, and we'll be back with our number three coming up shortly here on six ten KDAL.